friends, how's it going? It is March 4th, Sunday. It is the Asian Phil podcast with me, Angie Sue, and it has been a shitty past few weeks. You know, I got done editing this this episode about three weeks ago, and then um, just terrible things kept happening. Um, there was the the massacre of the people in the Atlanta area. Most of them were Asian women. And I recorded a whole thing. I just went off for like 30 minutes. And then a week later, after I edited it, there was another mass shooting in Boulder, Colorado. So I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll try to, you know, tie them both together and just talk about what's going on. And then just it just kept happening. Then there was a mass shooting in Orange County. Then there was a person who decided to kill some Capitol Police officers in D.C. So I am can't comment on everything. There's just a bunch of uh, people losing their minds. Um, we're still being attacked, you know, in, in one take, I went off about the super huge guy who decided to kick and stomp on an elderly Asian woman in New York city. And (laughs) and it just kills me that the fact that the security camera caught it on film and the two guys in the apartment building where this took place in front of, you know, they didn't even bother to help her after the guy was finished with her and walking away, they closed the door. Right. So that week I just went off about how, you know, why is it that we are, still seen as this perpetual foreigner. You know, we're not considered as American as everybody else because of the way we look. Right? We're subhuman, so we don't even need to be helped when we're brutally attacked. Like, we're we're not worth your effort to intervene. So there was just a lot of angry crying and I just, I slept on it and I thought, well, you know, justified anger, but maybe not right for a podcast intro. So I'm all done trying to make sense of it all because it doesn't make sense. You know, I'm not trying to wrap it up in a bow because it's just a, a never ending process. You know, I'm just going to say for what it's worth. I started this podcast because I saw that this was happening. And it was just my way, just a little tongue in cheek, of trying to show you another side of Asian America. You know, it's not these tired ass Hollywood tropes. Right? It's not the robotic A student. It's not the tiger mom. It's not... 
what else? The Asian whore, right? Prostitute, slut, seductress, um, sweatshop worker, right? For the most part, most Asian Americans are working class, middle class, upper middle class. That whole crazy rich Asian thing is just maybe the the very top percentile, just like it is in white America or black America. You know, those women that were murdered in Atlanta were working class. So part of me feels like this Asian hate is, of course, one part xenophobia, but we're not foreigners. So that doesn't make sense to me. One part... Um, really irresponsible leadership calling COVID-19 the China flu or the Kung flu. I mean, I hope to God they stop doing that because this is what it, this is the result, right? People pent up, people probably out of work, pissed, and they need a dog to kick. And for the past year, it's been us. Right? We're American. We have nothing to do with the goddamn virus. Okay, maybe because things are opening up, people are coming out of their homes and deciding to take some action. Right? Exact some revenge on somebody who's totally innocent of your situation. You know, and I also read that there are these weird viral challenges going out, like slap an Asian, etc., etc. So what's going to help the situation? You know, let's report our crimes as we believe them to be. You know, let's not be gaslit anymore and have people tell us that we're making a big deal out of something or that we're just too sensitive like, I think we can tell the difference when people are just being jerks and people are being racist toward us. Right, so let's report it for what it is. Also report it to Stop AAPI Hate because they're tracking all the hate crimes right now. Let's hold our leadership accountable. Let's hold law enforcement accountable. Right? If you're going to have these laws on the books, then you need to follow through with them. You know, I don't want to tell people to get in the middle because God knows what's going to happen. Right? The person is, I assure you, not in their right mind. And if you intervene, you might get hurt as well. But you can call the police. You can video it. Right? You can do things that aren't going to endanger yourself. What else? Oh, yeah. So this podcast, I wanted to show a different side of Asian Americans. I wanted to interview lots of different people so people could get a sense that, you know, Asian people are just like us. They do a variety of things, you know, and how they found their true calling or found their little niche in life is interesting. But I think... Because of the recent events, I think it's really important that we all try to get out there and tell our stories. 
you know, or document what's going on in the best way that we know how, right? If you're a writer, write. If you're a photographer, take photos. If you're someone like me, hey, start your own podcast. Because the more of us that are out here in media, holding people accountable, calling out bullshit, the better. You know, a couple of my early podcast episodes, I spoke with two psychologists, a male and a female. And, you know, we discussed a bunch of things related to Asian American culture and living here as an Asian American. And part of it was that model minority myth. And part of that myth is being meek and subservient and not going to complain and not going to make a fuss. Well, that shit is over. We are here and we're going to make a fuss and we are going to complain and we're going to stand up for our rights. We're citizens. We're Americans. We're not foreigners. We're entitled to all the things that every other citizen has. Equal protection under the law. You know, the right to just walk down a street. How about that? Without being spat on without being told to go home, go to your country. Anyways, I'm just going to post this episode tonight because I don't know what's going to happen. So that's my take on it. I'm going to try to explore this a little more with future guests. Today on the show, I'm going to speak with Abraham Ferrer. He is the Archives and Distribution Manager of Visual Communications, a nonprofit located in downtown Los Angeles. And they are there to help people like me and you learn the skills to tell our own stories. They have video classes, they have editing classes for the specific purpose of helping people learn how to use this technology and make their own films or media to give the world our point of view. So on with the show. Today I have with me Abraham Ferrer. He is the archives and distribution manager for visual communications based in Los Angeles. Good morning, Abe. How's it going? I'm trying to wake up, Angie, to tell you <laughs> honestly, goodness, truth. But I'm doing all right. I could be doing a lot worse, but, you know, like I'm here talking to you. So, you know, in the larger scheme of things, that's all good. So I wanted to let the listeners in on what Visual Communications is and the festival they run. It's called the Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival. And let's just start about with the history of visual communications and how it started. You know, this place actually is going to be starting its 51st year of continuous um, service to the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities starting in April. You know, that was the month that we were actually incorporated. And, you know, coincidence, it's around tax season. Back then, when this organization came into existence, it was largely just students. There are two groups of, of people. One, there was a group of, of folks who were instrumental in establishing the uh, UCLA Asian American Study Center. And uh, the second part 
which many people actually know is uh, the efforts of uh, four film school students at the UCLA Film School who were the, the second class of, a, of an affirmative action initiative called the Ethno Communications Program that was established at the, uh, at the UCLA Film School the year before. So, you know, just like a lot of organizations out there in the community, you know, Visual Communications was like student initiated and it came out of this idea that you know, with uh, the reclaimed history of ethnic studies, it does really no good if the purpose of that is to get an A and, you know, you go out to the world and then that, you know, recovered knowledge just basically sits on a shelf. That's no good. So uh, a lot of those folks basically like challenged a lot of that knowledge and uh, determined that the best way to put that into use is to use that recovered and reclaimed history to address uh, real world um, issues in our communities from healthcare, uh, lack of healthcare, gang violence, drug addiction, identity politics. And in the case of this particular organization, you know, the absence or the erasure of, um, of people of color in the role of storytellers in mass media. So that was how this organization was founded. It, it acquired uh, a reputation as the media arm of the Asian American movement, you know, because of the way that its productions were were geared primarily towards storytelling about our communities because nobody else you know was going to tell them or nobody you know mm -hmm. actually even cared about telling them or you know so that was how that started out student run and then you know once the folks got out of school you know they decided to continue things forward and that's where they received nonprofit status and uh, you know continued you know, building on their work and getting them into alternative um, venues, which is basically like every other place other than a multiplex. So, you know, the educational market, community screenings, you know, like a whole lot of other different uh, places and what have you. By the time that I came in, this organization had already produced mm, maybe like nearly 50 film and, and media productions and publications. So they were kind of already well on their way by the time that I got here. Cool. Yeah, I remember um, my first awareness of it is when I moved to L.A. around 93, and then I immediately tried to plug myself into the filmmakers, especially Asian American filmmakers in the community. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, everyone was trying to get their shorts together to submit to festivals, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's kind of interesting that, you know, by the time that I um, became aware of you, uh, you were already aligned with a lot of the uh, uh, the USC filmmakers. You know, I came from UCLA, and but I didn't go to film school. I was actually a, like an art school student. You know, but with USC, even though they had a different kind of, of of training method and a different kind of of environment, did take notice uh, uh, very very early on of people you know who are kind of like bubbling under. Um, you know, people like Sue Coe and mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, Erica Anderson and, and Eric Koyanagi and mm -hmm. and uh, and Chris Chan Lee, those those people. I think that that was kind of like a like a third or a fourth you know generation of people that felt comfortable enough with the bedrock that Asian American um, studies and Asian American cinema had laid that you know, they could um, venture out and do narrative or fiction stories. I think that that's the mm -hmm. generation that you kind of like came into. Yeah. And I know Eric Koinagi made his feature, was able to make a feature 100%, and then Chris Chan Lee was able to make Yellow. Mm -hmm. So they were able to, you know, accomplish a lot in their little indie world. 
and you know they branched off to do other things uh, professionally in film. Sure. Let's talk about the festival that was established in 1983. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. It's called the Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival, and I think it was was it one of the first specifically Asian Pacific film festivals in the country. I'm going to say no. Because, again, with a lot of uh, things with the movement, there had been a lot of groundwork Mm -hmm. that had been laid. I'm not going to get into, like, everything from the very, very beginning, because that's like Asian American Cinema 101. And a lot of the work, as I mentioned, that was being created was not geared specifically to a a film festival environment. No way. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, because a lot of that cinema was geared towards, um, you know, activism and community-based cinema. I think out of a series of one-off film festivals. Um, San Francisco, you know, did one, uh, more of a film showcase back in um, 1975 or 1976. It wasn't really until Asian Cinevision in 1978 formed the Asian American International Film Festival with the with a 24-hour movie marathon at NYU and, and all that other good stuff. Really, they were the ones because they you know, were very innovative about how to present work. They were the first ones who came up with the sustained idea of a film festival. And they were the very first ones who put together a traveling package. So in fact, a lot of the film festivals that you see now that were around at that time, you know, such as the old San Francisco International Asian American Film Festival, as well as Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival, really got their start by taking on Uh, the traveling packages from Asian Cinevision, you know, which was like a traveling festival that went to places where Asian American communities were taking root, but that didn't have yet that infrastructure to be able to organize, you know, places like Utah, places like Houston, Chicago, Miami, you know, kind of followed along with the whole idea that Asian American communities were sprouting up in places other than the West Coast and the East Coast. You know, so that was actually happening a long time ago. We took that traveling package in, and for the first couple of years in 1983 and then 1985, we uh, we highlighted those traveling packages from Asian Cinevision. And then after the third year, we determined that, you know, we wanted to essentially like grow our own um, curators, grow our own critical talent. And then that's where these festivals began starting everything from the ground up by doing their own call for entries and being responsive to the kind of cinema that was being made in their own backyards. Yeah, I had to hand it to ACV. You know, they were the first, you know, they were the template. They showed us what to do. But then I think that what was really great was that we were able to take that template, um, create our own and essentially run with it. So now you you know, see all these festivals that have their own different kinds of personalities, you know, visual communications because of its kind of of precarious relationship to the industry, you know, embraces, you know, the different uh, Hollywood guilds from the Directors Guild of America to Screen Actors Guild. And we basically have like a non-screening education component where we do panels, industry panels with different folks who are working in various aspects of the industry. Asian Cinevision, because of its activism and because of the personality of its community, I think was one of the very first uh, festivals to actively embrace East Asian cinema and South Asian cinema and Western Asian cinema. I think that they were among the first Asian American film festivals to to spotlight works from Turkey and Iran and, and Lebanon, I, I believe. So basically, we were all kind of like growing 
according to our individual communities and the individual talents that were bubbling up and, and, and that were making a name for themselves in those communities and stuff. And I think that visual communications characteristic of that growth, given that, you know, this is Los Angeles, our uh, proximity to the mainstream entertainment um, industry. And I think that just the fact that, oh my gosh, over like 37 years, 37 years, acculturation has meant that all of that struggle has set the stage for, you know, this generation of of Asian American and Pacific Islander creatives to to be successful, at least on their own terms. Cool. That's so good to know. I didn't know that Asian Cinevision started the whole putting together that package and was able to travel. And it was more like a, almost like outreach to all those communities that are outside of the big coastal cities. Yeah. To make I, it more accessible. A- yeah. I would actually like characterize it more like a Johnny Appleseed effect, you know, mm-hmm. while that was going on visual communications out of necessity pioneered this um, idea of doing a community premiere tour for you know select um, Asian American films that were on the verge so you know we had our own production Hito Hata raised the banner you know that went on a national tour of all these different you know cities where there were like orders what have you in each city would have a Friends of Visual Communications Committee that would be responsible for like doing those premieres. So later on, when you you know had these other films that were basically looking for a leg up, such as Lonnie Ding's Nisei Soldier, Wayne Wang's Eat a Bowl of Tea, such as, gosh, Renee Tajima and, and Christine Choi, or should I say Christine Choi and Renee Ta- Tajima's <laughs> um, Who Killed Vincent Chin, mm-hmm. uh, Arthur, Arthur Dong's Forbidden City USA. So basically that groundwork for national support built, and eventually that model was absorbed into what is now known as like the traditional film festival structure, you know, where you have premieres and what have you. Basically, it's kind of like a way of supporting key films, you know, that were basically going to be taking that next step up the long, long ladder. And you kind of like saw that eventually when, you know, we started moving into narrative productions with films, you know, such as, as Yellow, um, 100%, Gene Cahayan's The Debut in 19, in, in the year 2000. And then two years later, uh, Justin Lin's um, sophomore feature, Better Luck Tomorrow. And then three years later, you know, after that, Alice Wu's uh, Saving Face. So basically, mm-hmm. like, you know, those kind of structures that we built kind of like coalesce together. And I think that's like a really fantastic example of how we were able to like build a network and an infrastructure to support our artists. It's also interesting to note that you're still a very politically active festival. And it's really, it seems like a imperative to have Asian American voices, younger college students gain those skills to do that, to actually go out there and tell their stories. Yeah. And now we have festivals to show those stories in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, I think that even before, you know, the festival thing became a thing, I think that we were also involved in ensuring that whatever it is that we learned in film school, we're able to share and transmit to uh, people who couldn't afford that kind of education and what have you. So very early on, many of our organizations were doing community classes. You know, we, we started out with the Filmmakers Development Program in the 1980s. And then even before that, in the 1970s, because Asian Cinevision was founded in this whole maelstrom of community redevelopment in Chinatown, you know, they glommed on to the uh, cable access movement of the 1970s 
and were able to do classes in which in-language Chinese um, people would be able to develop programming that talked about their experiences and their struggles in Chinatown. And even before that, people like Keiko Suno at, at Downtown Community Television were really the pioneers of that. So basically that growth has been going on and on and on. So if you take a look at things such as Visual Communications' Armed with the Camera Fellowship, and Digital Histories Initiative for Seniors. And then if you go across the coast and take a look at the Asian American Film Lab's 48-hour shootout or 72-hour shootout or 60-minute shootout, whatever it is, you know, basically like those are, are, are structures that are in place to enable people not only the access of making movies and stuff, but also instill with them the discipline to be able to make um, cinema without thinking that they got to go like Spielberg and have a million dollar budget and have to and have to measure their success by white man's rules, i.e. making a feature. Mm -hmm. you know, so basically, the reason why you see all of this activity is I, I have to believe that it's because people have become freer to be able to to make cinema on their own terms. And for a lot of them, it doesn't have to be a feature. That's why I think that we have, you know, such a strong field and why it's always getting more and more difficult to program and curate work because there are so many out there. And if you take a look at say like a thousand individual pieces, features and shorts in any given year when, you know, when you're uh, taking a look at call for entry pieces, that maybe, maybe uh, 50 of those works at most will probably get rejected because they are categorically bad. Then what comes of the other uh, 950 that otherwise could or should be programmed if there was space? It's a good problem to have, but it's a really painful one every year because there's always a lot of worthy material that's out there. You know, we remain limited in terms of the capacity to be able to, to show everything, you know? So it's mm -hmm. kind of like a, it's kind of like a really painful situation, but like I said, a good problem to have. So, yeah, so that's kind of like a little bit of the where the environment is now. Right, especially with everything changing, with the, all the platforms changing and, mm -hmm. you know, even um, theaters are hurting, not just because of COVID, but because of the streaming services and stuff. Mm -hmm. I find that that is also freeing for lots of creators and creative types because then, yeah, you're not limited to an hour and a half feature, right? Or even shorts like, oh, I'm going to shoot this short, but where am I going to show it? Well, now it's like you can show it anywhere. You can have it on any streaming service. You can have it on your website. Mm -hmm. You can do these virtual film festivals. And yeah. there's all these venues and you, you're not really limited to genre anymore either. Because, mm -hmm. yeah, everyone is so open to everything now. Yeah. I would also add that it frees up people to be able to create their own exhibition environment. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you I'll give you an example. There's like two examples. Back in like 2000, 2001, there was like this street tagging crew from Orange County called the 705 Collective. And they basically were like a trio of skater boys and artists, you know, who when they weren't tagging up buildings and what have you, they were making these really ridiculous videos that had you know like a crazy kind of devil may care appeal and, and what happened was that they caught the attention of um, leanne kim who at the time was the uh, executive director of the san diego asian film festival and she gave them a space and so 
Uh, this is how the 705 Trio were able to move from a strictly online, um, limited broadband environment to a festival circuit. They're really off the wall and crazy pieces, you know, would find uh, an additional sort of audience. Cut to like three years later, a trio of um, UC San Diego film students who were studying under Steve Fagan, uh, Wesley Chan, Philip Wang, Ted Fu, created a little project about a couple of of college roommates who couldn't find a way to talk to the to the girl of their dreams. Mm-hmm. It was a piece called it was a piece called Yellow Fever. And you know it was like kind of like silly and crappy, but when they put it online, it, it really, really amassed a following. And then later on, when they created a graduation project called A Moment With You, which was basically like a 97-minute you know, piece in which I, they probably would admit that they didn't know what the hell they were doing. When they, <laughs> traveled it, when they traveled it to brick and mortar locations, they found that all the people that, who fell in love with yellow fever came out for them. Wow. And it didn't hurt that you know, they were three good-looking guys just out of college. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, so like the little collective that they founded as a vehicle to create their works, Sketchbook Media and Wong Fu Productions, you know, basically took off. And the result of that is it essentially like caught the, um, you know, the studio-based industry flat-footed because they were among the very first adopters to uh, YouTube, which debuted in November of 2005. And, you know, basically that was an audience that, you know, that the studios had no access to. This is kind of like the start, really, of where, you know, where we were really establishing diverse exhibition formats and venues for our audiences and stuff. Greg Pak in 1999 mm-hmm. uh, started it off by embedding QuickTime uh, movies in his AsianAmericanFilms.com website. Mm-hmm. And then other, you know, people, particularly bloggers, such as, uh, Secret Asian Man mm-hmm. and Angry Asian Man and and Leela, who you worked with a few years ago, mm-hmm. like she she was also an animator if you remember. And her character, I think it was like Sally Kim, mm-hmm. the angry little Asian girl. Mm-hmm. She blew up. So you know, so basically, again, this is kind of like where all these people kind of like were the building blocks of alternative cinema today. You know, where they really, really, really had control of their audience and had control of, of what they put out there. So that really was storytelling really from their perspectives. You know, you can kind of like see that confluence of things happening from community-based cinema you know, cinema that was entering the mainstream, and then cinema that was entering the mainstream from a place that the studios were a little bit slow-footed to adopt. And so, you know, basically when they woke up and saw that Wong Fu Productions and and Ryan Higa um, from Las Vegas and Kevin Wu from uh, Sugarland, Texas, and and all these other people, Happy Slip and and others were basically like blowing up. Studios didn't have an entree into that environment. So that that's kind of like where we're at right now, Asian American cinema. It's a beautiful mess. <laughs> and, um, you know, again, and, and I think that that, you know, gets the whole thing that, you know, we need to be everywhere and we need to create, you know, the content that's going to reach out to our audience. So we really need to create all of it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. So that's kind of like we're in the process of like really building that environment. I think also just with the timing of all the technology is really aiding all of it. Because like you said, you know, Greg embedding the QuickTime on his website. So slowly the technology is sort of leveling the access 
And because the whole old studio system is so entrenched in this kind of gatekeeper medieval way of going up the ladder and getting films made, you know, it just doesn't work that well anymore. Because now YouTube has been around, like you said, since 2005. They still do not understand the power that they have. <laughs> and they even, you know, because they started Cobra Kai, but they couldn't keep it up. It's like they just gave up and they let it go. They're out of the whole original content game, which is crazy to me. Because everyone's making their own content and putting it up on YouTube. So I guess they just feel like they don't need to do that or they just don't have the right people to lead that. Everybody else is making their own movies, making their own shorts, making their own art, you know, because a lot uh -huh. of it is just visual art. It's not even like narrative or documentary. But because the technology is so easy now, like I have a phone, I can shoot on my phone, I can clean it up, I can edit it on my phone <laughs> I can send it to Twitter or to Instagram in 10 seconds after I've shot it so um it's pretty amazing because you don't need to have a ton of money to shoot films anymore whereas before that sure. was the barrier cameras were expensive film was expensive editors etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah and now it's just you can do it all by yourself basically mm -hmm. yeah I think that what what remains a challenge is the idea of what you commit to film, what kind of stories that you are telling. Mm -hmm. uh, back in the 70s, the 60s and 70s, when this animal that we recognize as Asian American cinema started, there were a lot of key influences in a lot of that work. There was like the visual communication style, which is very primary color and very postmodern expressionistic and very, very cinematic, mm -hmm. right? Even the founders gave more than a thumbs up or a hat tip to collectives like the Cuban film collectives of the 1960s. And and then there was that style that was pioneered by groups like Third World News Reel in New York, the shoot in the moment style. And I think that nowadays, uh, one of the things that gives me a little bit of pause is that a lot of filmmakers don't really work on their cinematic toolbox. They don't really work developing their own style, their own way of seeing, their own way of, of uh, you know, uh, observing how they look at the world. I don't want to diss my man, you know, Justin Chan. I love him, but he has already made three feature-length films. Uh, one is basically like a throwaway comedy that he did back in 2004, but uh, more recently, he did a couple of pieces, you know, that were very, very inspired by French New Wave cinema. Um, one was a piece called Gook, you know, that was inspired by like a French film, La Chambre, I believe. Yeah, that got a lot of play. Yeah. And then another one uh, that was inspired by the uh, cinematic language of um, of Wong Kar Wai, mm -hmm. you know, Miss gosh, Miss Tuesday. I, I don't remember the name of it right now, but what I'm really looking for is I'm looking for, for him to develop the Justin Chan aesthetic, mm -hmm. um, the Justin Chan toolbox in which when he looks at the world um, and we see it on screen, we know that that's a Justin Chan film. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's kind of the way, you know, the way in which, you know, we can look at a Wayne Wong movie and say, yeah, that's a Wayne Wong movie. Or we can take a look at the dance and action oriented films of, 
of John M. Chu mm -hmm. and say like, yeah, that's a John M. Chu movie. And, you know, we're talking um, all the way from like his USC thesis film to, you know, the step up films to GI Joe and, and even his documentaries and say like, yeah, it's, you know, that kind of aesthetic. Crazy and, Rich Asians. Well, I would say that crazy <laughs> it's a little Rich, different. <laughs> it's, it, it's different. I think that that's kind of like an outlier in terms of his style and stuff. And, and um, you know, because that film is, only two and a half years old in relationship to this whole half century of achievement in Asian American cinema. I don't want to talk too much about it because I think that its long-term impact in terms of how we see things and how we see our world, we haven't seen that impact yet. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think it's, I think it's, I think that we'll be ready to talk about it in say like 10 years uh, when we've seen, you know, what's been built on top of it. Right. You know, much, much in the same way that, you could not see the impact of films, you know, such as a Hito Hata or a Saving Face or even Joy Luck Club. Yeah, even even those until you take a look at Crazy Rich Asians and basically, you know, you realize what it has built upon. I, I, I really do look at things in terms of a context and in terms of a the throughput in terms of how things develop. You know, getting back to the whole thing of storytelling, I really would love to see, you know, more filmmakers develop that kind of style, that kind of aesthetic that's built on the kind of things that that influence them, mm -hmm. right? Much in the same way that, you know, we talk about these other films and what have you. I'd like to also see films like when Wayne did Slam Dance or when that whole age of people who were like in love with Godard and the French New Wave were coming up. People like Greg Araki, folks like uh, John Mortsu and, mm -hmm. and uh, Roddy Bagala. And even earlier that, like Teresa, Teresa Choff from the 1970s and Janice Tanaka and even, you know, Bruce and Norman Yonemoto, I think that even though their works may not be grounded in like community or identity or what have you, it's their, still their perspective. And I'm enamored of seeing what's happening there and stuff. If you go ahead and take a look at that and like fast forward 40 years and see the kind of work that, you know, like a filmmaker who is not constrained by ethnicity, but are looking at other underserved communities and communities of color. And, and in this particular case, I am talking about uh, Chloe Shao from NYU. Mm -hmm. Again, that kind of like gets to the whole thing is that I really want to see it all, you know, because we have the capacity, you know, to be able to tell all those stories, but from our perspectives as people of color and as non-white people, right. being able to see the world through our lens. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And how was this year's Sundance? I mean, you know, it was COVID affected, so it was all virtual. But um, how was the Asian American or Asian representation in Sundance this year? Mm, well, I uh, that that's a little difficult to say, you know, because it seemed like there was like the same amount of film from filmmakers. And naturally, it was like a slimmed down um, selection of work. I think that they cut down their slate by about 33 mm. percent and they cut out four days from their normal festival and so i'm not sure about you know this year um, because again i continue to see what i call the uh, netflixification of cinema right. across the board i think that you know for every relevatory film you know such as say uh, nomadland or uh, even kathy yan's uh, first commercial film it was a, a birds of prey, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken. You know, for for all of that, you see a lot of films that are already thinking 
that in order to be a success, uh, we must make film for multiple platforms. That's kind of where I see, you know, the challenge of aesthetic over commerce. But um, anyways, but there, there, there was like a couple of films that, that were clearly made for commercial audiences and, you know, because they had that kind of appeal. And then on the other hand, you had documentary filmmakers from the old school, like Debbie Lum, who finally, after like 25 years, arrived in Park City with a documentary documenting a year in the life of Lowell High School in San Francisco. You know, so you basically had like a wide variety of works, but uh, I think it's still the same kind of struggle. The struggle to be seen, the, the, the struggle to tell your own story mm-hmm. on your own terms. As you mentioned, what has changed is that the arena has expanded because, you know, there are more venues or more platforms that hunger content. So I think that that's a good thing, but it could also be a double-edged sword because, you know, you have to also consider uh, the question of what kind of work would be characteristic of the platform that you sign on. I think that over the years, for instance, that Netflix can be characterized by a certain personality of, of cinema and then a venue like, uh, say, like Amazon Prime and Hulu, they, you know, they have their own unique taste or flavor of what it is that they'll be able to accept. Even the bigger cable companies like HBO, you know, has basically come up with their own streaming channels to get in on that market as well, which is why they scooped up uh, uh, the latest um, film by Nanfu Wong. You know, so there is that competition, but I think that. The, the, there's like the, also the question of okay well um you know what and who are you making this movie for i think that that's like a like a question that always you know that always remains if you were looking for clickbait responses for me i would basically like tell you that of the non-asian american films that i've seen um some were compelling some were crap but i think that that is typical of most film festivals and what have you because you know people will gravitate towards the low-hanging fruit other people will want to challenge themselves so for instance when you have a really really accessible film such as coda um, which was the big grand jury prize mm-hmm. um, winner and really made people feel good because of its themes of a family that was hearing challenged. And, you know, they have like the one um, hearing enabled daughter who really wants to get out of the family business and, and pursue her dreams of being a singer. You know, that's kind of like a really crowd pleasing kind of a, uh, you know, kind of a thing. On the other hand, when you have a very challenging and very, a very rigorous film, um, such as Christopher Yogi's I Was a Simple Man, you know, then that's kind of like where really you have to like put your thinking cap on and really, really try and understand, you know, what the intent of um, of a filmmaker is. Is it, you know, that kind of rigorous honesty, you know, such as in Chris Yogi's film? Or do you play for the, the back of the of the theater with a film such as Marvelous in the Black Hole, which, you know, I finally like figured out that's Kathy Sang's film that, you know, was getting a lot of buzz um, you know, in Park City. So in a venue like Sundance, you know, there's always going to be, you know, that push and pull. And, you know, you never really know what the curatorial prerogatives of that programming committee is, much in the same way that the programming prerogatives of a of a platform such as the Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival is really unknown until we see what people are are producing. It's like 
you know, we basically program in accordance with uh, what we discover, what's on our people's minds, what's, you know, what's in their heads, what's really exciting them, what's really getting them angry. And we really won't know that until they submit and we actually see that work and begin to, you know, uh, determine some some outcomes or conclusions of what, you know, what people are thinking about and what they're committing, you know, onto screen. I'm going to take a, a really hot second and uh, related to that, you know, there are a couple of terms that, you know, that govern the way that I look at, at, at movies um, by people of color. And they are that there are two words that I don't use in my vocabulary word any, anymore. Uh, one of them is the D word. <laughs> and one of them is the R word, right? Both of those terms to me, you know, represents conditions of tokenism and of obligation by the Hollywood mainstream to try and address our erasure, uh, you know, as people of color, and more importantly, as participants in American society. And as an outgrowth of the D word and the R word, you know, we see a lot of, um, you know, the tropes that develop out of this, right? The Asian sidekick, you know, the, the colored person who, uh, you know, who's no longer the first one to die, you know, on, on screen in an action movie, you know, the, the hooker with a heart of gold, you know, waitress number five, you know, to me, I kind of feel like, you know, if that's how you treat us and if that's your way of saying that, oh, we'd rather not have you here, but, you know, since we're obligated to have you here, you know, then, uh, you know, we'll put you in this role. Uh, you only get a line, but you're on screen and that should be good enough for you. I totally reject that, you know, because like, as I mentioned to you, us filmmakers of color, you know, have the power to tell the stories that we want in the way that we want to, um, you know, do that. And I, I kind of feel that the D word and the R word, I think that for people of color and for particularly for this particular conversation, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, that's not our problem. That's your problem because you created the situation in which we have been erased in your society. So in looking at it in terms of an analogy, when we're taking a look at the D word or the R word, it's, you know, basically like saying like, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you so much, you know, for you know letting me appear in your film. I'm really glad to like have that role of waiter number five or what have you. And I think that I look at it in opposition to say self-determination, uh, which basically is like hand over the car keys, bitch, we're driving now. <laughs> You know, so basically, like, I, I, I see that struggle all that all, all the time and what have you. And when I hear people use this rather tiring hashtag game, R matters, I, I'm like, no, it's like our perspective and our vision um, and our voice matter, um, you know, to be able to, to, to tell the stories, you know, that we want to tell and however we want to tell, you know, that's, that's kind of like the way that I feel about it. And I think that, you know, there was like a famous episode, if you remember, where Justin, you know, had a screening of his film, Better Luck mm -hmm. Tomorrow in Park City, and some white critic took him to task for, you know, the portrayals of the four characters in the film and what have you. And um, another critic, I believe it was Roger Ebert, just basically said, you know, that, you know, in no in certain terms that Justin is an Orange County boy, he's an American as anybody else, and he has the uh, the right to tell whatever the hell story that he wants to say. So I think that, you know, that kind of like gets into that struggle, you know, that we want to be successful in that arena. But 
uh, at what point do we say that we don't want to have to compromise creatively or storytelling wise in order to be able to get there? And I think that that's, you know, when you when you keep seeing stories that come out now, and I'm not going to, um, you know, give out samples, um, when you keep seeing things, you know, that's going out there either on Netflix or on Sundance Channel, it, it, it's pretty obvious that we are still, um, we're still trying to figure it out. Right. Well, and also there's still people in power, the gatekeepers, that are still trying to figure it out. So they they need to open their minds to hire more people like us. <laughs> and we're only people of color because we're here. We're not people of color in Asia. So <laughs> Right. Or like I said, you know, you know, get it out of the driver's seat because right. we want to drive now. And now we have all these tools to do it, you know. There's no excuse not to go out and make a film. Like it's way too easy now. Absolutely. Hey, I wanted to ask you, uh, what have you been doing with your life and what have you? Because one of the things that, you know, that that I remember from your generation was that when you and all those people um, who were in Chris Chan Lee's film uh, came out in, in <laughs> that mid 90s, <laughs> the mid 90s, I remember that you you folks were really distinct because you had like a really hot you know, motion picture that was out. But the lasting impression that I have is that all of you would attend other screenings on what, from the smallest or the shortest um, Asian American short to longest feature. And I think that that has really stuck with me, you know, because you struck me as a generation of people who were in it to win it. Yeah. And that involved not only making the movies, but also getting out there and physically showing your support you know, for your uh, fellow peers. And when I take a look at your class of people, there's you, um, you know, there's Leela, but there's also Jason Tobin, Bert Bulos, John Cho, and, and all the others and stuff in hell. Each of you have continued in your own ways of not only creating, but supporting other artists. And I, I don't know whether or not to take a look at it as like something that was like an anomaly or whether or not it was something that was characteristic of your generation of people that were coming up. But I really do think in retrospect, that you um, had an investment or recognized an investment in what you were doing and that you, know, you um, owed it to your fellow peers to go out there and support their works as well because, you know, you guys made a feature. But then there were other people who were kind of like bubbling under that could have benefited from the little, you know, from the support of the little push and stuff, and, and you guys provided it. I think that that's one thing that I really remember from that time when Yellow was going on tour along with the strawberry fields and shopping for fangs and 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 the cousins piece um sunsets you guys like you know had a lasting impact i really have to believe um in that sense i think it has um a couple of factors like one being a lot of us went to film school like i went to film school in chicago so this is when we're still yeah. shooting on film <laughs> we we're actually cutting the film with racers, editing with tape, you know, all that stuff. Sync sound mm -hmm. was a whole different class. So when you're shooting, like if you're shooting on cheaper cameras, they didn't have sound. So you had to actually go learn how to record sound and then sync the sound. So it was a whole, you know, a, a whole thing. I think because um, a lot of us came from that background and then we were making our films, 
then to finally make a feature and to finally actually have it in this festival that was Asian was super cool. You know, it was, um, and then just being so embraced by everybody who ran the festival and who came to see our films. And then I think we just, you know, I'm just speaking for myself, but I think we just found that if we could band together, like we could push mm -hmm. one of us over the top. And I think, you know, not to take away from their own achievements and their own hard work, but I feel like, you know, we succeeded by getting John Cho up there, mm -hmm. who's a huge star now, you know, and getting Justin Lin up there, who's a mm -hmm. huge star now. Like he is just, he just went way beyond mm -hmm. everyone's expectations. Like I remember talking to Justin one time at the Nada mm -hmm. Fest mm -hmm. in San Francisco and he had done shopping for things and that's what he was in the festival for. We were just chatting one night and I said, you should do John Woo type movies. Like I see you being an action movie. And he was like, he didn't even have anything that showed that he could do an action movie, you know. But I said, there's something about you that tells me that you could do action movies. So maybe I'm just psychic, but I just, I saw it in him, you know, and I just really wanted to encourage him to do it. I remember when he was trying to get his film finished, Better Luck Tomorrow. Like, and he was pulling favors from people and I was working for a graphic design company and I was telling them, you know, I talked to the owners and they could do their, your titles for you if you still need someone to do that. But he had found somebody to do that for him. So yeah, we really wanted to pool our resources, you know, like the Koreans have a, yeah, yeah I think they call it. Mm -hmm. Everyone pitches in money <laughs> every month and then they take turns on who gets the pile, you know, right. of money at the end of the month. So we were just there and just really trying to pull our resources together to try to get somebody mm -hmm. over the line, right? Try to score that touchdown. So, so in that way, I think we succeeded. You know, I think two extra Asian faces in the mainstream sure. is a big sure. deal. Sure, I think so. I think I had one fi a, a final question for you, and it has to do with like the current, um, you know, state of Asian American cinema. I, I, I note that this past year that we've seen the the coming out parties of people who have been kind of like bubbling under for a number, number of years now. Um, I, I, I did mention, you know, Kathy Yan and, um, and Chloe Shao. I also take note of um, filmmakers um, such as Ursula Liang, um, you know, on the documentary side and um, and a few others. And, and then Alice Wu has reemerged um, this year after a very, very long, you know, creative mm -hmm. hiatus. I'm kind of like wondering, now that it appears that there is a slow shift towards a sense of gender equity in terms of like who controls the image and who you know, um, you know, creates things. And what do you see as the future development of Asian American Pacific Islander women being able to be successful in the mainstream and really be in that kind of conversation, deep conversation when it comes time to like, you know, awards, you know, conversation or, or even further, you know, the possibility of, you know, making $100,000 grossing uh, motion pictures and, you know, what have you. I mean, like, do you think that that's like a good thing or do you think that there's still kind of like, like a double-edged sword there? I think it's such a strange thing because if you think about what a success Wayne Wang's film was, The Joy Luck Club, you know, based on a hugely successful book written by a Chinese American woman, hugely successful film. But like you said, there wasn't a huge 
Asian <laughs> resurgence of filmmakers after that. So I think it does come down to these Hollywood gatekeepers. And if you think about films that do really, really well, like think about Tyler Perry, right? His films do huge numbers, but for whatever reason, I'm not going to say the R word, <laughs> for whatever reason, Hollywood never took him seriously, right? Like they just, they just thought, okay, it makes money, but you know, it's not a quote unquote quality film, you know, or something like that. So even if we have films that are highly successful, if you don't get that, I don't know what it is, a cachet of cool or something like you're not a Wes Anderson, right? I mean, think about Wes Anderson doesn't make huge blockbuster movies, but for whatever reason, he's highly respected in Hollywood and people clamor to work with him and make movies with him. So it's not just box office and it's not just the fact that you've won all these awards. It's something about you have to win over the taste of these gatekeepers. If these gatekeepers think you're cool, then your path to making more yeah. movies is easier. So it's hard because it's like you can make tons of money for them, but they still don't respect you. You know, they just see you as like Tyler Perry. They just see you as someone for the black audience. Right. Or they see Chloe Zhao as someone for the indie audience. You know, it's not like they're going to trust her with like a hundred million dollar movie. I doubt that she even wants to do those types who of films, but who knows, you know, but it's something about, I don't know. It has to satisfy their cool factor. Like I'm sure they love um, John Woo and they love Wong Kar Wai because they're kind of snobs for this type of cachet. Mm. And if you think about it, they probably would not even know who these people are if it were not for Quentin Tarantino telling them that they're cool. So they're not cool themselves, but they look to people like Quentin Tarantino to tell them what's cool. Right. So the people in charge really don't have an opinion. You know, they look toward other tastemakers. You can make them a bazillion dollars at the box office, but you still might not have another job. Mm after that movie. I think what you're saying is right. Really learn the skills, right? Learn how to shoot, learn how to edit, learn how to tell a story visually, right? And just keep making them. Like, guess what? This podcast is called Asian Fail because if you don't fail a hundred times, you're never gonna get good. Yeah, you're never gonna learn how to succeed, in other words. yeah. And a big part of it, like I know a lot of Asians who are afraid to fail. <laughs> it's like they don't want to do anything unless they can be super good at it from from the start. You know, like a dance class. They don't want to go dancing unless they've taken dance classes in private. And then they go out and dance and they act like, oh, this is so easy for me. So that's just not life. Like life, you, you have to mm -hmm. fail upwards, right? Like you're going to have to go in there. You're going to make a crap just crappy movies and then all of a sudden it's all going to click and it you're going to make a really mm -hmm. astounding one yeah or you 
will never be able to like make a movie the way that you want to and you'll wind up um you know working as a box boy at trader joe's which is which is another thing that can happen <laughs> but you know i i, I don't want to uh, like actually go there but I, I i think that elementally you know that you're that you're right you know we were talking at some length about greg pock and i really liked his aesthetic and what have you it's like you know just go out and make film just continue to make film tell stories mm-hmm. and don't get hung up on on making a long form narrative and holding it up as your barometer of success because while you're waiting years and years and years you know to acquire the millions of dollars it would make to to make a movie you can just basically like put part of your paycheck into buying yourself a, a motion picture camera get Best Buy and, you know, getting together with a with a few friends with a script on a couple of weekends and just make a movie. Yeah. You don't even need to do that. The iPhone cameras are pretty damn mm-hmm. good, Eve. <laughs> and you'd be surprised. Like, you can oh, get yeah, pretty no, good I sound from I them, too. I don't doubt too. it because, like, uh, many people have, you know, have done that. Um, you know, Sean Baker has done it with a couple of, mm-hmm. yeah, shot, shot uh, motion pictures that yeah. have gotten into Sundance. The filmmaker Bong Joon-ho, you know, has already made a couple of, of maxi short films way back in the day using iPhones that he basically like exhausted, <laughs> you know, just to make uh, movies and what have you. So no, so, you know, basically like accessible modes of movie making are possible and what have you. But, you know, the thing that can never be discounted is basically uh, your perspective and your storytelling craft. And I, I don't know if, you know, you'd have to be as dogmatic about it as say like Spike Lee, who says that, if you don't learn the craft of filmmaker and how to, you know, make a story, your movies are invariably going to be crappy and invaluable and what have you. You absolutely positively, like, need to learn how to tell a story and how to tell it cinematically. I don't know if that's, mm-hmm. like, 100% true, but I know that from your background and my background, you know, that learning how to do things, you know, so that you can, you know, have the affordability to, like, occasionally break rules you know, to expand your vocabulary. I think that that's a a vital thing, you know? Right. No one's saying that you have to drop 100K and go to SC. Like, you don't have to do that at all. But you can take classes at visual communications and learn how to actually use this camera, use the equipment, and learn how to tell a story. And no one's going to shoot a film right out the gate. Like you're going to do these five minute oh, little yeah. things here and there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we, we, you just have to get in there and do it. Like there's no getting yeah, around. Absolutely. It. <laughs> it's like getting in good shape. Like there's no getting around not working out. Like you have to get in there and work it out. Strengthen those storytelling muscles, right? Strengthen those technical muscles. And then eventually, yeah, you can, like you might be turned down by Abe many times, but that's okay, right? It's called Asian fail. Like you need to fail, buddy. Sorry to tell you, but you're going to get rejected a lot. And then one day Abe's going to say, yes. Yeah. I will well, except the fact film. that, except the fact that like <laughs> I no longer, uh, you know, have to, you know, be the one to do that. I mean, like I've been working for the longest time uh, within a committee structure because, you know, we, we need a body of people whose experiences and perspectives are broad enough that you know we can see this work in the context in which it deserves to be seen. As for myself, you know, after having done this for like many years, I'm happy to uh, basically work you know intimately with other aspects of visual communications because, as I mentioned to you, 
you know, this place is like a four ring circus and, and for as large as it is, the film festival really is only one activity of many things that, you know, that we do. I'm, you know, these days concerned with visual communications and not so much with the Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival. That's like 37 years of growth. And there's a new generation of people who uh, have taken it under its wings and have been shepherding it. And I think that that's a really good thing. You know, just 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 like the late Jim Yee used to say up at the National Asian American Telecommunications Association, the test of longevity occurs when you leave something and turn it over to a new generation of people, you know, to let it grow or let it die. But like I said, visual communications is a larger animal, and that's you know the part of it that you know, I'm here to you know help take care of. Are there any programs you want to tell the listeners about to get involved in if they want to start telling their stories? The easiest is to log on to our website, which is vcmedia.org. You'll have the opportunity to sign up for our weekly e-letter in which we present you know many many opportunities for involvement throughout the year. Uh, the film festival itself, because of COVID and out of necessity, is going to shift uh, this year to a harvest festival um, season thing. So it's going to be happening in mid to late um, September. And then hopefully, uh, once this Trump thing is over, we'll transition back to a springtime thing, right? And so because we have to watch out for our people, we do not want to be talking about our filmmakers in the past tense. You know, Lord knows that you know, we've lost you know, quite a few of them this year, you know, that that should never have happened. We need to stay focused on making sure that our people are safe, you know, and that, you know, they're going to be around after this pandemic is over so that they continue to make films and they continue to excite us and amaze us with their work. But, you know, sign up for the e-list and find out, as I mentioned, we currently have two major filmmaking initiatives here, the uh, Armed with a Camera Fellowship for Emerging uh, media artists, um, generally filmmakers on the verge who are under the age of 30 and who probably need to get out of that um, sunken mindset that they need to make a feature to be successful. And right. uh, the other one is the Digital Histories Initiative, uh, which you know can shorthand is Senior Asian American Media Initiative for older Asian Americans. And I swear to God, you know, after years of watching these folks work, some of them who are like in their 70s and 80s know their way around Adobe Premiere and Final Cut Pro a whole lot better than a lot of film students I know. And I think that um, actually that should be very concerning (laughs) (laughs) for people who are in film school or are aspiring for Sundance and stuff. It's like, you know, if if an 80 year old woman can have your lunch, you know, then I think that you should be very worried or else you need to step up your game. But those are a couple of things, you know, that are you know happening as well. You know, people on the, on the East Coast, the Asian American Film Lab is very much still keeping it together and stuff. The 72-hour film shootout is as healthy and uh, wild and woolly as ever. They always do their premieres at Asian Cinevision's um, Asian American International Film Festival each year. So, you know, so people, you know, should definitely look out for those opportunities uh, wherever they are, whether or not they're coming from uh, visual communications or Asian Cinevision or uh, the organization that was the National Asian American Telecommunications Association, but which is now the Center for Asian American Media, the, the Vancouver um, Asian American Film Festival's Mighty Filmmaker Shootout. So you know, there's like a lot of opportunities you know, for people you know, to learn the craft of, of filmmaking and learning it from a grassroots 
community-based background and environment. That's where I would tell people where there's a starting point. Getting to visual communications, because again, we are you know, going to basically wrap up doing the festival as a as a fall thing. Uh, we are going to be looking for um, seasonal employees as well as volunteers and stuff. And so, um, you know, those announcements will be coming out shortly. Yeah, it's a roller coaster and it happens happens cool. all year round. Um, I'm going to put all those links in the show notes for everybody so they can check you guys out. Abe, thank you so much for chatting with me, Asian Fail. <laughs> It, it is it, that it, I am. It, it, it is so good to, to, to see you. And it's so, it's so great, you know, to talk in another context other than us bitching and moaning about the Dodgers and Lakers on Facebook. I mean, like, I kind of like feel that, you know, this is what we're reduced to, you know, and I'm like, oh, my God, you know, because like, you know, Angie, I know that you got other things, you know, going on and stuff, but I'm like, oh, but, you know, my Dodgers. Yeah, we finally did it. Abe. We, fin- we finally did it. You know, and COVID was like this close <laughs> to shutting us down. And we finally we squeaked past it. That's it. That's it right there. <laughs> well, thank you, Abe. Oh, no. Well, thank you. I'm really glad that, you know, we had a chance to, uh, to touch base and reunite again. Me too. So basically, like, uh, um, what exactly is Asian Fail? Is it basically like a podcast? Is it re- a reflection <laughs> of your life? Is it... It's just a podcast that I record in my son's room. That's how professional I am. Okay. Recording in your son's room. That, yeah. That, that this all, is my son's room. That all by itself is an Asian fail. And, <laughs> totally. and I, think that, I think that instead of talking about Sundance, I think that we should like concentrate on that. <laughs> Why am I recording in my son's room? <laughs> yeah. Why can't you? Why can't you do a studio? Why? You know, I like, boy, that is like, that's like Asian mom fail in so many ways. Oh, Abe, you're going to make me cry. <laughs> Are you going to shame me the whole time? No, no, I'm not. <laughs> I am not. It should be good. Ah, Abe, busted my balls. Hope you guys enjoy the episode. Hope you guys take advantage, take some classes there at VC. Um, Donate if you don't want to take classes and you just want to kick them some cash to help other people take some classes. If you guys are film students or maybe not, maybe you're middle-aged moms like me and you want to volunteer for the film festival or volunteer for visual communications, sign up. You're going to learn a lot of stuff. And if you guys are stressing, anxious, panicky, check out my last episode. I go over a panic attack remedy. Um, It's just a little breathing exercise. Nothing too woo-woo. But it will help. It does really calm you down and let you kind of come back to a nice, peaceful little place. So everyone, take care. I'm about to get my first dose next week. So excited. Oh, yeah. We're almost there, people. But keep your masks on. Okay, I'm out. <laughs>